All right, we are in uh, part two of this series called Deconstruct. And, and if you weren't here last week, we're basically doing a study through the book of Hebrews. And we named it Deconstruct because I don't know about how, what your experience was growing up in faith. I, in my faith journey growing up, I was taught a lot of how to follow Jesus or, you know, here's what you got to do at church. A lot of the hows and not as much of the whys. Why do we actually believe what we believe? Why is this idea of Jesus, this idea of the, the body of Christ, why is it something we should even think about? And last week, we, we took kind of a deep dive into introduction of Hebrews. And this week, we're going to jump in to chapter one. And before you do, before you do that, I want you to think if you can remember a time that maybe you heard something for the very first time. And when you heard it, you couldn't quite grasp it or believe it. Like it was just... To, it changed your whole life perspective. I remember one time I, I was probably, I don't know, 24, 25 years old. I'd gone to this computer show in Atlanta, uh, where you, like a, a convention, and we filled out a card. If you went to so many things, you could enter your name into a drawing. I was there with a friend who had no clue what I was even doing there. I just followed him around, threw this thing in. And, and about three months after that, I get a phone call that was like, hey, is this Patrick Thompson? I'm like, yes. And they said, Congratulations, you have just won a $10,000 prize, including a brand new computer, laptop computer. This was like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Like nobody had a laptop then. Like a laptop computer with all this software and a cruise for two people and a cash prize. And I was like, yeah, right. And I hung up the phone. Cause I'm like, no, like that's, this is a scam, you know? Well, they called back and I was like, they started telling me again. And I was like, hold on, what are you, what are you saying? And they were like, you actually won this prize. There was a drawing. You put your name in at this computer show. And I was like, are you kidding me? And we literally won this prize. I won a laptop computer. Katie and I, like we were dirt poor. And we got on this amazing Royal Caribbean cruise. And we, we were like living our lives, you know. And I was like, wow. I mean, it was amazing. This one call, like I'm experiencing things I never experienced before. But then I was thinking, this past week, I actually got something in the mail that kind of scared me in a bad direction, right? Like, you ever go to the mailbox and when I pulled out all the mail, I saw it said IRS at the top. And I was like, oh, your heart just starts beating a little bit. And I've always heard like, if they're auditing you, you get something certified mail. I was like, all right, this isn't certified mail, but and the envelope's not too thick. So maybe, I don't know, I get upstairs and it was, we had reapplied for Natalie's FAFSA for school. And it was like telling us we had you know, looked at our tax returns and I was like the sweat, you know, I, I did the sweat off my head. But sometimes we get things that totally shift our lives. Sometimes we think we have everything figured out and then some new info comes into our life. And the truth is we, we live in a world where uh, this, is, this is a theory uh, that's out there. It's not really a theory, it's just kind of a, a way people operate. It's, this kind of thinking has been around since the 1950s, what I'm gonna show you. We, we live with kind of three kind of knowledges in our life. One is what we know, right? Like things we know, we know. Like you, there are certain things you've gone to college for, you, you, you know what two plus two equals, it equals four, right? There are some things you know. I have a minor, I, my undergrad, I have a minor in physics. Uh, please don't ask me too much about physics. I know some basic things I know about motion and acceleration, I can still, you know, figure out energy and some things like that if you give me the equations. So I have, I know what I know. But then there's a second category of stuff that we 
know that we don't know. And if I, if I keep this physics illustration, I know that there is a ton about physics that I don't know and don't remember. Like there, there are pieces, I, I can understand how motion and acceleration and all that work, but I can't build a car. I know that I can't, you would not want to get in a car that had any part of building because that is just not, I know I don't know how to do that. But then there's this whole next section, much bigger section of what we don't know that we don't know. And there is somewhere out there stuff I don't even understand, haven't even conceptualized about physics and energy and renewables and all this kind of stuff that is out there that I have zero clue that I even could have knowledge about. And then all of a sudden, maybe one day I get some knowledge and a whole new realm of information and understanding opens up to me. And this is basically what the book of Hebrews is. It is a time of telling a story to people that is being revealed to them, not just something that they know, not just something that they know that they didn't know, but it's some brand new understanding. And it's this, this, that, that the promise of the Messiah has been fulfilled. This is what Hebrews is all about. And to remind you last week, a little bit of what we talked about, about Hebrews, it was written to Hebrew people throughout the Middle East region at that time, during the time of Christ, that were considering, they were hearing for the first time this new idea, this expanded knowledge, these claims that Christians were making that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, now think about it. In that day, that was not a day of instantaneous 24-hour social media news cycles, trending topics. All of those things are the ability to get instant reaction to whatever was come, going on in the world. You can do that now, right? I mean, Whatever topic you want to find out what people are talking about, you just type in a hashtag into Twitter and you can at least see a conversation about it. It gets around the world in the snap of a fingers. During these days, this time, news moved slow. Really, really slow. Most of these people had never met Jesus. Many maybe are just hearing about him for the first time. The, the, these Hebrews that lived all throughout this region, who this letter was written to and circulated to, they, many of them were hearing about Jesus maybe for the very first time. But there were some things that they did know, right? We, we mentioned there are some, some things that we all knew. And, and what did these people, these recipients of this letter, what did they know? They knew. They had a view of one God who had a deep love for his people. They knew that. That was part of their history and tradition. They also knew the Hebrew scriptures and traditions, mainly what we would classify as the Old Testament, stories of sacrifice and the sacrificial system of prayers and God providing. They knew the stories of exile and being taken into Assyria and Babylonian and now Roman exile. They knew those stories. They also had stories of faith from their own Hebrew people in their history, right? people like Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, all of these people that were, were beautiful examples, pillars of history. And they also knew that they did have the promise of a Messiah from God for his people. The idea that God would send a man to be the savior of his people was an ancient idea that was held onto by this group of people. They had been on the lookout for him for centuries. Many had claimed to be that savior, but none had ever panned out or been able to live up to the bold claims that God had made in scripture about this person. So that's what they knew and kind of what they knew they didn't know, like who, who it was. And then came Jesus and what they didn't know that they didn't know. And this is why last week we talked about 
that the fact that the book of Hebrews is not a book of theology or methodology, it is a book of philosophy, a new philosophy, this new philosophy of who is Jesus and why is Jesus this fulfillment. So again, these are people who have lived in, in many of us, we all have, we all have traditions in our life, right? Traditions, philosophies that we live by. If you ask yourself right now, and we took the time to share with one another, I can guarantee you pretty quickly, you can come up with a philosophy that you live by. Maybe it's not painted on your kitchen wall or hanging by your bed, or you may not, you know, have it as a mantra every morning you give up, but, but you do live by some kind of philosophy, you know, family first, or make as much money as it can, whatever it is. We have these mantras, these philosophies that we live by. This was a new philosophy. In this philosophy book, this book of Hebrews, takes on two major ideas and it sets up as its tenets of this philosophy. And the first one is this, Jesus is more and different than the other ways God has communicated and connected to his people in the past. So the, the first tenet of this philosophy, Jesus is more, Jesus is different than the way God has communicated and connected with his people in the past, it's different. But the second is this, Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the promises made by God to his people for a savior and deliverer. So he's unique, it's a different new way, but it's also the complete way. The one that, this is the argument that this book is making. In these, in these chapters in this book, it is saying Jesus is unique and different, but yet he is also complete. And we're gonna see that as we look through this. So we're gonna see these in these early chapters, uh, what, what the writer's gonna do is gonna debate ideas of who other Hebrew people were saying Jesus was. So when they were looking historically, they said, well, you know, Jesus may not be Messiah, but he could be one of these. And here's uh, what they were saying, because God has honestly connected with people in many, many different ways. And that's what Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says. They start off with this, and the writers of this make a, a beautiful step here in 1 and 2 to basically create a connecting point to all the, the people in the audience. And they say, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, right? He did it by the prophets. They, they said that God has always spoken to us, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he anointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writers here are making the claim that Jesus is the son of God, not just a messenger of God, not a prophet of God, but someone sent on behalf of God, God the son, God as a man, God as a human. So what were some of the things that people compared Jesus to? And when you think about the Old Testament, one, they said Jesus was like an angel or a priest or a prophet. Maybe he was like a new Moses bringing a new law. And, and they were saying, you know, this is God in a, in a person, in a human form. They're like, how can that be? Because God is in the temple. Like, is Jesus now the temple walking around? It was a whole new thing. And what we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, especially these first few chapters, is how these writers take on each one of these ideas and compare who Christ is, this new Jesus philosophy. So chapter one takes on the idea, the first one we're going to look at here is how Jesus is unique, different, and completely uh, unique from angels. And that is what we're going to look at this morning. Now, you may think it's odd to start a sermon series that talk about angels, because, you know, when we look at our history, our modern history, our cultural history, it is not built on stories of key moments with angels, right? Messengers of God showed up playing a key role in, in American Western history. That's just not part of our, you know, 
Jesus didn't help, you know, I mean, uh, an angel, it's not recorded in our history books that an angel showed up to help George Washington escape from New York and eventually cross the Delaware River, right? You know, that's not part of what we learn. We don't learn that, you know, there was an angel who came and talked to Abraham Lincoln and said, you know, sign the Emancipation Proclamation and, you know, it's okay to, you know, embark on this civil war. We don't have a story of an angel showing up to JFK and giving him secret knowledge about how to get the moon mission going, you know, or standing alongside Reagan when he stood there and empowering Reagan to tell Gorbachev, tear down that wall. That is not part of our history, right? We have these, but to the Hebrew origin stories and their histories are filled with stories of angels, direct messengers from God being involved in key moments, transformational times, They were for certain individuals and for the nation as a whole. So the idea that people would compare Jesus to an angel is not at all far-fetched. For us, it would seem maybe distant or a a hard reach, but for them in that day and that time, it was not. Because most people would have seen it as a comparison to their histories and their traditions. As a matter of fact, I want us to quickly look at what, what its purpose did the angels serve, especially when we look back to the Old Testament, because that's all they really had to look at when this book was going around. They just didn't show up at fun or random moments. Be like, you know, it'd be fun to hang out with the humans today. Let's pop down. That's not how it happened. They came with specific uh, ideas in mind. And the first thing, usually when we see the stories of angels, they usually would show up to give direction, right? So God would send an angel sometimes to give his people direction, to point them along a new path, to help them where they were lost. You think about when Abraham and Sarah uh, the, the founders of the nation of Israel, an angel showed up, three angels showed up to them and basically told them they were going to have a child in their old age. And Sarah laughed. And after she laughed at them, they were like, okay, you're not going to talk for the next nine months and just shut her up. And uh, crazy stories like that. But it, it turned their life in a new direction. Uh, the rescue of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, angels showed up and said, you need to get out of here. Go somewhere different. Do not stay here. There's a story, a couple of stories of Jacob where he has a vision of a ladder going to heaven and angels coming up and down. And then there's the story of him wrestling either with God or an angel. There's different interpretations, but these moments where he had interaction that totally didn't just move him in a new direction. It gave him a new name. It changed him physically in those moments, put his life in a new direction. Or what about when the angels were present when God gave Moses the law? A new way of living as a people was spelled out. So angels can give direction. The second thing they can do is they can deliver people, right? They can come to aid people. He would send angels when people needed it for some kind of deliverance or or great need or some unmanageable burden. Think about the Passover angel who protected the children of Israel in Egypt. Think about the angel that was in the fiery furnace with with the three, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that were that protected them in the midst of the fire. The angel that kept the lion's mouth shut when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, or the angel that came and strengthened Elijah after his battle with Jezebel and her 450 priests of Baal. There was deliverance. There was ministering to at that point. But then angels also came for destruction, right? I mean, they would sometimes show up and. Again, go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were there when the fire and brimstone came down. They, they brought the judgment there. They, 
The other story, part of the story of the Passover angels, angels, they brought death and destruction to Israel. There's a story in the Bible. It says the angel came and the angels of the Lord came into the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 men. And that the, over and over again, angels cursed the enemies of the people of God. And so if someone, think about these things, right? You got direction, deliverance, destruction. And if someone was hearing the story of Jesus, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing blind people, throwing around tables in the temple and saying he would destroy this place and rebuild it in three days, or giving new teachings about how to follow God and his law, then it would be easy to think that he was an angel in the form of a human showing up to the Hebrew people to perform mighty works of power, healing, and transformation with some new message from God. That's how they could see it. I can honestly see how they would see it. But I want us to hear this morning what Hebrews tells us as we get into this is Jesus is different than the angels. Very different. As much as that's cool, as much as I think like when I read those stories, it'd be cool to have an angel encounter like, you know, an angel wake you up in the middle of the night and be like, ha, you're going to win the lottery tomorrow. Yeah, yes, you know, great. You know, there's some great news or some protection when, when, I'm, when I'm really in a rough spot, like, you know, uh, I'm just, you know, something bad's going on and, and there's an angel standing beside me. That would be so cool. But yet what we're going to see is Jesus is so much different and even better than that. And the writers of this book in chapter one quickly dispelled this argument that Jesus was an angel instead and make another major claim about him. And while he does give direction and while Jesus does give deliverance and even brings destruction at times, it was in a new way in a prophesied way that we're going to see start to play out in this book of Hebrews. And so look at me in verse three and four of chapter one right quick. And uh, this is what the writers are begin to say about this son that they said, this son of God uh, in verse three, it says he talking about Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited and more excellent than theirs. In this verse, in verse three, the writers lay out three claims very quickly about Jesus, that he was the radiance of the glory of God, he was the exact imprint of God's nature, and that power is found in his words. That is what they said. These three things would have been unmistakable to the Hebrews of that day that the authors were claiming that Jesus was God. All three of them. The radiance of God's glory, that only came from God. Nobody else carried the radiance of God except God the Creator. The exact imprint, a reflection, a complete, exact, not just a part of who God is, but all. And then the power being in His words to create and to give authority, that is only found the only person that can make those three claims is God himself. And so over the next few verses in chapter one, the writers are basically going to take some key passages from some of the most, one of the most treasured books in Hebrew literature, the Psalms. And they're going to use the words, the own words of the Hebrew Psalms to talk about how Jesus, the son of God is unique, complete and supreme as the promised Messiah. And so let's look at these quickly. And the first thing they, the claim they make here is that Jesus is unique, unique, saying that he is the radiance of the glory of God. And they go on to explain this in verse five 
and 6. And they quote two passages here, Psalms 2 and Psalms 97, and they say this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. These are two quotes from the Psalms that they're basically saying, Jesus is different. He's, he's never said to an angel, you're my son. And he's never told the other angels to worship another angel. And, and Jesus, or the writers use a word here, begotten, and it's key. And while the angels may have been sent by God, Jesus, it says, is begotten by God, an offspring of God, a, a replication. You know, I have two kids, and PJ and Natalie, they're you know, in their 20s now. We have seen them grow up. They've been in my life almost as long, you know, been in, we're almost hitting that halfway point where they've been in my life longer than I've not had them there. And, and the great thing about having kids and family, the great thing and the not so great thing is they know everything about you, right? And as much as you know about that, they know everything about you. We, my, my mom always had, we had what we call family secrets, right? You know, you just, there were things I'd start to tell a story and she's like, oh no, you don't tell that one. Like that stays here. This is within the family, but they, they become you, right? That becomes a, a, a part of you. They, they've inherited your DNA you know, physically, I'm, you know, PJ's taller than me. He's hoping he's not going to be bald like me, but you never know. I told him, enjoy it while you can, PJ. There I go. But, you know, physically, emotionally, the values are all imprinted on them. We have a shared DNA. And that's what this word begotten means. It is not, uh, you know, somebody who is familiar with God, been around. It is, it is of God. It is not just somebody known by God, it is somebody who's completely of God. And then the, the word radiance that is used in verse one can also be translated reflection. And when you combine the idea of begotten and reflection, it literally means a birth out of. It means that God birthed a complete replica, replica of himself in Jesus. Meaning Jesus is the most unique human that has ever lived and will ever live. He wasn't an angel who just popped in to make an impact. He was God birthing himself into human form. That's what the writers are claiming here, that Jesus is unique. And if that's true, there's a philosophy that we have to hold on to. And the philosophy is this, that an encounter with Jesus is an encounter with God. That's different than anything people had talked about before. That, that if we encounter Jesus, we are encountering God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the creator of you and me, the, the one who formed and shaped everything. An encounter with Jesus is an encounter with God. So he's unique. But then in the next few verses, they bring up another aspect of Jesus that, that brings him out of the, the realm of angels. And it's this, Jesus is complete. And they say that he is, uh, and, and the verse is that Jesus is an exact imprint of God's nature. In Hebrews 1, 8 through 9, they quote Psalms 46 to talk about this. And this is what it says. But, the son, but of the Son, Jesus, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so the writers here are using two images again to communicate something unique about the completeness of Jesus. And they first as they says that he holds the scepter of the kingdom of God. Now, we are, you know, Joe Biden does not walk around the leader of our, you know, country with a scepter to show that he has power. You know, be like I'm the one in charge, I have the scepter, but in those days, those who held the scepter, hold on to a rod with ornate rod, like it showed I have the power. We see Joe Biden's face every day. We see Putin's face every day now. We see other world, we can recognize them. We, they didn't have media back then. So if you wanna know who the king was, it was the guy holding the stick. It's like battle for the stick, right? You know, I got the stick today, so I'm the one in power. And that's why how you recognized authority and power. And this would have not have been missed by the Hebrew people that day when they read this story, that the scepter was a sign of he who held the scepter held the power. Moses held a, a type of scepter that he you know, did amazing things with. His brother Aaron, the first high priest, carried a rod as a scepter of power, became part of the priestly tradition in the Jewish faith. These writers are telling us here that Jesus did not need to come and be a conqueror of Rome or the world to be king. He is already king and holds the scepter to the kingdom of God. He came with power. He didn't have to wrestle it away from anybody else. He came with power. That's different. That's different. But then they, the second thing that they talk about there is that in the next verse is that Jesus being anointed with the oil of gladness even anointed beyond his companions, uh, others that maybe have been anointed as king. And gladness here, the word means exaltation, meaning most exalted, beloved, or the one with the highest regard. And this imagery of God anointing Jesus is this, in this way, is another demonstration of the writers telling us that there is no other man that God will elevate higher than Jesus, that the oil has already been poured out on to Jesus. And what this means is they're telling us that Jesus did not need to be recognized by earthly authority for his legitimacy. He came with authority. One of the major questions Jesus got that we see recorded in, in the Gospels, he would be doing things and teaching things and the high priests and the other Pharisees would say, but on whose authority do you say this? What, what man, what rabbi's authority are you speaking on? And Jesus was like, I speak on my father's authority, on the one who sent me. And so as Jesus telling, he came with the authority. Jesus is the complete and exact replica of God's, God. God's nature has been imprinted on him, so he is complete in power and authority. And if that's true, then there's a philosophy we have to consider. If we're going to live by this Jesus philosophy, this why, then an encounter with Jesus, not only is it an encounter with God, but an encounter with Jesus will cause us to relinquish authority and submit to his lordship. That's not bad news. That's like good news. We have a benevolent, benevolent all-wise leader who actually cares about us. The person with complete power and authority actually loves us, cares for us, has value in us, formed us, shaped us. It's not bad news that I get to submit and relinquish authority to him and submit to his lordship. So he's complete. He is complete is what they say. And then finally, 
the writers here, that they say Jesus is supreme. Supreme. And this is where he says that Jesus upholds the universe by the power of his word. And we see now in Hebrews 1.13, as they quote Psalms 10.1 here, and they say this, And to which of his angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He said, I've never told my angels that, but that's what he told Jesus. He said, be at my right hand. You are equal to me. And this, again, the writers here give two images that stand out uh, to the people reading this of that day. And the first is the idea of the right hand seat, and the second is the footstool. The invitation of God for Jesus, his son, to sit at his right hand is a distinction of equality. That this person at my right hand carries the same power, authority as I do. Jesus isn't a part of God's court or just one of the many ways that God has spoken in past days that we looked at in verse one. No, Jesus holds the same position as the Father. They're arguing here that he is supreme and he has supreme authority and power to dispense judgment and wrath and eventually to make his enemies a footstool. Now the idea of a footstool, uh, I have these little footstools in our apartment at home and I use them for comfort, right? I mean, I wanna kick my feet up a little bit, uh, but a footstool at that time would not have just been for comfort. It was the idea they literally would bring the enemies in and have an enemy kneel over, bend over and use that enemy as a footstool. Instead of a wooden, light, nice little cushion thing, it was some guy's back that you were propping your feet up off to show just how much you have defeated this person. And so the idea of footstool here means to have dominion over complete sovereignty and control. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't kind of sound like the Jesus we know and talk about, right? Didn't he come to love, bring grace, happiness, joy, sunshine, and rainbows to everybody? The answer is yes, he did. But by exercising complete sovereign and control over our number one enemy and the number one enemy of God. What is that? Listen to these two verses. They're not going to be here, but just listen. This goes back to Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Jesus then, after making purifications for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited and more, is more excellent than theirs. After making purification for their sins. Do you know what our number one enemy and the number one enemy of God is? Sin sin. Jesus is the destroyer of our ultimate enemy, sin. And the sin and the penalty of sin he destroys is not just this list of bad things. Oh, you know, I got to wake up in the morning and tell every, tell God all the bad things I did yesterday so he can, you know, kill those things in my life and make me better. It's not, that's not. Sin, sin boils down to two things. And this is what Jesus fights against in our life. First, it is our own self-righteousness. It's us when we want to be the authority. We want to be the power. We want to be supreme, but we're not, right? Because it would be horrible if we were, because I'm selfish. Those of you I know pretty well in here, you're selfish too. You know, we all have these selfish motives in our life. We're jealous at times of others. We get arrogant thinking that I'm better than others. I live prideful at times. And if I'm, if I'm at all 
and authority and have sovereign control over everything, and I'm operating out of those kind of mentalities, it's not going to be good for you and it's not going to be good for me in the long term. And so the first sin that this, that Jesus comes and attacks and makes a footstool is our self-righteousness. To say it is not about you. But the second is this. He also fights against the sin of our own self-destruction. When we believe that we're not worthy, when we believe that we're unlovable or unforgivable, when we diminish the image of ourselves and our minds to something that we think no one could love, that's just as damaging as self-righteousness is to believe that you are unworthy to be loved by God, that God can never love you. And while it's not our acts or our inherent worthiness that causes God to love us, there is nothing in you that would make God say, I don't, I'm not willing to love you, to sacrifice and bring forgiveness into your life. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes in our lives we struggle with self-righteousness, but many times we suck just as much struggle with self-doubt. And I want you to hear this morning, Jesus has made both of these, the self-righteousness and the self-destruction. He has made both of these his footstool. And he has, and he has ex, ex, executed dominion over them. You aren't God, but you, aren't so, you also are not unloved by God. And so if this is true, what is the philosophy that we hold on to? It's this, an encounter with Jesus will bring harmony in my life as we embrace his correction and his wisdom. So not only am I willing to submit to him as lordship, but now this correction, his wisdom is gonna bring harmony in my life. You know, there was one thing about these encounters with angels that we looked at in the Old Testament, just so briefly that, that are found in Hebrew history that, that does hold true for Jesus as well. Anytime someone had an encounter with an angel, their life was completely different afterwards. They were going in a new direction, right? They were experiencing some kind of new deliverance in their life, or maybe their most oppressing enemy had been destroyed. Because Jesus is unique, complete, and supreme, we experience all of this with Jesus as well. Which brings us to our major philosophy of the day is this. A true encounter with Jesus is life-altering. You can't remain the same. You, you can have a brush with Jesus. You can have knowledge of him. You can know somebody who knows, says they know Jesus, or grow up in a home that we said was a Christian home. But it, when you have this true encounter, where you understand the philosophy, an encounter with Jesus is an encounter with God. And when I understand his power, I am willing to submit to his lordship. And finally, when I do that, it will bring harmony in my life as I take his correction and his wisdom. Then it will change your life. You can't remain the same. Jesus can give you a new direction when you feel lost, hopeless, and futile. Jesus can bring you deliverance in the midst of chaos, loneliness, or despair. And Jesus can destroy the sin in your life that is rotting your soul to believing that you are better or worse than everybody else. So the question for the day is simply this. How can you better encounter Jesus moving forward? Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, in your faith journey, maybe it's learning, getting to know or to understand, or maybe it's you've been around it your whole life and you've never had this true deep encounter, or maybe it's inviting Jesus into more of your life and submitting more 
letting go more of your selfishness and your pride. The question for me that I'm gonna to try to live out this week is how can I better encounter Jesus as I walk through my days? Let's pray together. God, just in this quiet moment, give us uh, the mind and the heart to consider, to consider these philosophies. For some of us, this comes natural. We've heard it our whole lives. It's been a part of our upbringing, our histories, but we've, we've heard it, but maybe we've never truly considered that an encounter with Jesus encounter with you and that you have put your full imprint on him and his power and authority brings peace and harmony in our lives this idea that Jesus is better than the angels and the other things God would you help us to consider that because as we consider God we give you our hearts to say, lead us to the right conclusions. So God, we give you our minds this morning. We give you the ability to consider the things that you're challenging us with. But God, as we consider, I, I pray in my life, in the lives of those sitting here, that we would also have an openness Maybe there's an area of life we've never opened up before that we're still holding on and allowing our self-righteousness to rule or our self-destruction to eat us alive. God, would you allow us to have an openness, to have this, these truths come in and bring healing, or hope, or rebuke, or repair, whatever we need today. God, thank you that we can come and have these moments together.